As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Torsten Slock holding court at Deutsche Bank for years. He's chief economist at a rising uh, Apollo. Torsten, thank you so much for joining this morning. What's the operative theory right now for a Fed? Let's say they're restrictive. Some would say they're super restrictive. Underlying that is a need to turn at some point. What's the theory they have right now to get ready to turn out quarters out, meetings out? Well, that's a really good question. And I think the answer to that is it's all about the dual mandate that for a long, long time, they've been focusing on the inflation part of the dual mandate because it was very clear that inflation was and still is at levels that are too high for their comfort. I do think that the narrative, both for the Fed and also for markets, will now begin to change towards growth or towards employment. In other words, what are the reasons why we're still having this strong economy and if the lack effects of monetary policy that they have spoken about for so long where it takes 12 to 18 months to slow the economy down well the lack effects of fed hikes will eventually begin to slow things down we're already seeing that across all indicators and we should expect that also to happen over the coming quarters so then how do you explain jobless claims coming in lower than expected how do you explain other metrics of wage growth continuing to remain robust yeah, so in that sense, there's still a very strong labor market. <clears throat> Average hourly earnings last Friday went up, and this labor market, obviously, in jobless claims, still looking relatively tight, which certainly also get the Fed to say, well, we still need to hike rates more, and still tighter monetary policy is needed. But at this point, if you see companies, whether it's Delta, whether it's Pepsi, whether it's a number of the others that are seeing profit margins expand with their input prices coming down more than what they can charge consumers, you have people who are employed. At what point does it become a virtuous cycle that offsets any pain of those rate hikes? Well, and also at this point, uh, as you also talk a lot about, the housing market is beginning to recover. Traffic of prospective buyers is going up. You look, existing home sales is going up. New home sales is going up. Home builder confidence, home buyer confidence, <coughs> even the number of offers received per sold property is also going up. Their bidding wars are coming back. And remember, housing makes up 40% of the CPI. So the risk is if we start <coughs> with core CPI, which was at 4.8, that's still just way too high for their comfort. So that's why for them, it's still the hawkish communication saying both on the inflation side and on the growth side, on the employment side of the dual mandate, we just got to keep making sure that we don't have an economy that continues to look overheated on a number of different fronts. I want to look at the larger optimist standpoint that America's fully employed. This is in the zeitgeist off the jobs report uh, five, six, eight days ago. And this is the employment as compared to population ratio of prime age people in America. 
is a full recovery mode, literally back on, literally back on regression, back on trend. That's got to be the most optimistic chart for politicians in America. Well, and that's why the debate for the Fed is probably, well, do we need to soften the labor market? As you know, different FOMC members are putting different weight on this. <clears throat> do we need to soften the labor market to get inflation to come down? I mean, let's not forget, inflation today, core CPI was at 48 We are nowhere near the 2% target where they want it to be. And with that backdrop, of course, they will continue to say, we just got to keep going because we still have way too high inflation. One less understood aspect of Fed policy is not just what happens when you raise rates at the pace they have, but what happens when you hold them for a prolonged period of time, especially as companies have already refinanced and aren't really capturing a lot of the higher yields that are being charged out there by investors? When does that bite? When does that scenario change? Yeah, no, the very important answer to that is that this is exactly the crystallization of the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. Where is it showing up? And the answer to your question, Lee, is that it's showing up in a number of different places. You are beginning to see delinquency rates for auto loans going up. Delinquency rates for credit cards are going up. You're beginning to see default rates for corporates on high yield going up. Loans also see default rates going up. So across the board, both for consumers and for corporates, the conclusion is a default cycle has started. So it is biting. It's just not showing up at the macro level quite yet, but it's very clear that the effects of monetary policy are showing up in the background and it will eventually begin to slow things down. Lisa, this employment to population prime age, this is the core of America. The success of a decade, 2010, off of the terrible financial crisis, moving from 75% employed up to 80% employed. Granted, there's a lot of people not in that number that aren't employed. A pandemic that was worse than the financial crisis. We've rebounded back and we've burst through where we were in the autumn of 2019. It's a fully employed America of the people that are employable. Well, and this becomes sort of the question, what could change that scenario, which is why we're wondering about transmission mechanism. If you don't see that, you're saying we do see a default cycle that is starting. However, at the same time, some of these companies were sort of destined to default a while back and are now just sort of being washed out. What do you see this cycle looking like eventually? When do you start to see some of those lag effects taking effect? Well, one way to do that is on my Bloomberg screen to type SHOK and try to give a shock to the Fed funds rate, five percentage points higher. What is the profile for GDP over the next several years if you do raise the Fed funds rate by five percentage points in a very short period of time? And the answer is that it takes three, four, five quarters before you get the maximum impact. So in other ways, let's talk about this as what happened to the lagged effects of monetary policy? Inflation is coming down, but what about growth? And I think the narrative will now shift away from saying inflation looks better, the trend is better, we're still at a high level. But what about this idea that when we step on the brakes, you will see monetary policy having a negative impact on consumption, on capex spending, and that's exactly what we're seeing. You see same-store retail sales is coming down, you're seeing capex spending coming down, default rates are going up, delinquency rates are going up. It is beginning to bite, as you're saying, Lisa, in the background. So we will and should still expect to see over the next several quarters a continued slowdown. This is what the Fed wants. This is the whole reason why they're raising interest rates to get the economy to continue to slow down. That's worked out well. Um, You know, I got 14 ways to go here in our two-hour conversation. But I've got to drive towards the arch overlay here, which you think about at Apollo. And I'm going to go to Paul Romer, the great growth economist, the great economist thinking about technology. Are we just fooling ourselves in that there's a technology technological overlay where 
the haves of all incomes are benefiting from technology, and there's a whole other Luddite part of society that's not participating? Well, at least on the AI front, it's certainly something that's more happening in financial markets than out there in the real economy. What about out in the real economy? I'm thinking about your Germany flat on its back right now. No, uh, well, the bottom line <clears throat> is still that the Europeans are definitely, of course, experiencing some headwinds as a result of the AI boom that we're seeing in the US at the moment. Unfortunately, we're not quite seeing that in the productivity data as we speak, but you're right over time. This will certainly be something that helps. I don't think this matters so much for the business cycle in the near term and for the Fed, but I do think that it does matter for discussions about the potential growth rate of the U.S. economy. Just quickly here, you were talking about how as inflation comes down, that's when you start to see profits, revenues come down. Is this sort of the unspoken reality that actually inflation was positive for companies, increased their revenues and allowed the growth? Oh, absolutely. This is spot on because inflation is not only about output prices, it's also input prices. In other words, things that are sold when you have high inflation could have wider profit margins. <clears throat> But the cost of production were also right. very elevated. And if all that comes down, it's not only helping in terms of lower cost of production, it's also going to squeeze margins. I keep thinking, Tom, about what Torsten Salk just said, and we heard a similar kind of discussion from Tony Dwyer, that when revenues come in, that is when it is a game changer. And perhaps one of the most unstated, understated, and also misunderstood aspects of inflation was how much it boosted companies' revenues, how much yes, it boosted yes, a lot of Phil the growth. And all of a sudden, when you start to nope. see inflation come in <clears throat> and revenues don't increase at the same kind of right. levels, then how much do you see a resetting back to a normal type of economic This is where backdrop? you impute the inflation in the system. The giant Phil Curray, value investor, pioneer in New York, lived to be 104, uh, whatever. Nominal GDP is the great misguess right now, isn't it? Absolutely. And what's really critical about this is that equities trade on nominal data, bonds and rates trades on real data. Stop the show. Guys, frame that. Give that to every show this week. Say it again. Nominal GDP matters. Because what matters for nominal earnings in the S&P 500, which has grown 6% annually for the last 40 years, is all about nominal variables and nominal GDP, nominal revenue. Everything is measured in nominal terms. So when inflation comes down, you should also expect the bond market to look at that and say, well, that's not for us. That's what's happening in equities. Whereas bond markets will say it's all about what's happening on the real side, meaning on the volume on the unit side. Torsten, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate this today with Apollo as well. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. 
Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The hallmark of the show has always been to keep score. We take careful care with those that get it wrong. We really pay attention to those that get it right. It is no surprise to anyone over the decades to know with a longer time frame, a longer perspective, the gentleman from Yale once again has nailed it. Edward Yardeni joins us, president of Yardeni Research. What were you thinking, not the third week of October, the low, but let me say the first week of October, the hysteria there, the gloom. How are you framing out the optimism that got this really well, I, going? I, I watch... Uh sentiment in the equity market very carefully, and uh, there's something called the investor's intelligence old yep. bear ratio. And uh, in mid-October, it got down to 0. 0.60, which is as depressed as it was in March of uh, 20, uh, 2009. And I was thinking, surely things aren't anywhere near as bad as they were back then. And uh, I, I've also been in the of the view that uh, we're not going to have a uh, economy-wide recession. I was of the view that We've been in a rolling recession. Uh, so it all kind of came together for me by the end of October. And I said, you know, I think October 12th was the low. Do you think we can carry on beating up low expectations? Well, the problem now is that uh, there's uh, too many bulls. Uh, you know, we've nothing to fear but fearless investors. Uh, we don't really have enough pes- – I mean, the technical sentiment picture isn't that that uh, good because there just aren't enough pessimists out there. But the problem is the fundamentals are really good. Uh, you know, I think everybody's uh, uh, swung around from worrying about an economy-wide recession to sort of embracing a disinflationary soft landing. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with the PPI, but, uh, you know, we could have a trifecta of really great numbers. Expected inflation on Monday was lower than, than expected, and uh, the CPI was great, and I think the PPI is going to be very good as well. So disinflation is here. Will bank earnings validate some of the optimism? I think so. I think uh, we are going to see a continuation, as you pointed out, of an increase in uh, loan loss reserves. Uh, The Fed actually puts out a weekly series on that for large banks and small banks. For the large banks, it's actually up 16% on a year-over-year basis. So there there could be some disappointment on earnings from that that perspective. Uh, But much depends on the economy. If uh, people embrace the, the view that the economy can continue to grow, then credit quality is not going to be that big an issue. And they may be able to, within a few quarters, just to reduce those loan loss reserves, and suddenly the profits are looking pretty good again. Months ago, you were talking about 4,500. How high have you gone in terms of an S&P forecast? Yeah, I, I've actually been uh, – I'm going to raise you by 100. I'm, I, I've been talking about 4,600. Okay. Uh, but what's the difference? Uh, you know, it's been a bull market since October 12th. And uh, the problem with 4,600 is we're awfully close to that. That was my year-end target. And it looked delusional earlier this year, I have to admit, uh, but it's worked out awfully well. Uh, we're only, what, uh, you know, 150 uh, points away from that, maybe less than that. Um, so uh, let's get to 4,600 and then ask me again, but I'll probably raise it to 4,800 depending on how things are, are shaping up. How do profit margins fit into this? Because we were speaking earlier about the likelihood right. where we could see a shifting narrative there, especially if revenues mm-hmm. come in the way that Tony Dwyer was right. talking about. Do you see things differently? Well, we, we have had a uh, earnings recession, a very mild one. Uh, it looks like earnings are going to be down about 8% on a year-over-year basis 
during the second quarter, and that should be the worst of it. And then we start to progressively see better comparisons and a positive comparison by the fourth quarter. Uh, interestingly, this earnings recession hasn't been uh, attributable uh, to revenues. Revenues for S&P 500 are at an all-time record high, so clearly it's been the profit margin. So the profit margin has been getting squeezed for the past year or so. Uh, but I see signs uh, in weekly data that we uh, monitor uh, looking at forward earnings and forward revenues that suggest that analysts are seeing signs that uh, revenues are that profit margins are bottoming. I, I look at you, Denny, at the past here, and it's so easy to go back and do some analog with 10 years ago or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. The fact is, when you know we first knew Edward Yardeni at C.J. Lawrence, you were with Lou Rukeyser talking about the public in individual stocks. Now we are overwhelmed with index fund investment Correct. and ETF investment. How does that change the dynamics of the market optimistically or right. negatively given these new instruments? Well, it's very frustrating for individual investors and certainly for institutional investors that uh, uh, we're taught that diversification is an important aspect of managing a portfolio. And suddenly we have uh, the, the mega cap H stocks that account for 27% of the S&P 500. So, uh, you know, if you don't have 27% of your portfolio in those stocks, you've been underperforming. So it's a lot of pressure to you know, play that game to, you know, continue mm. to buy into that um, that group of stocks. Um, but it is what it is. Um, right. th these are great companies and uh, they're, uh, I, I think it all really started, uh, you know, with when Facebook realized that uh, their stock was getting hammered. They said, well, we can show everybody just how much we really make. All we got to do is cut our expenses and that's easy enough. And that's what a lot of them did. And then the AI thing uh, uh, happened. So what's the theme for it? 12 months forward, what's the next theme for corporate America to perform? Well, my theme is, uh, I tend to focus on longer-term themes. My theme is uh, the roaring 2020s, which, again, looked quite delusional over the past uh, few years. Uh, but uh, the decade isn't over, and there's still time for it to run. And I think in, I think technological innovation is going to make a big difference. John, the analog there is the pandemic of 1918, 1919, yeah. boom, right into the roaring 20s. You coined the term bond vigilantes. Yep. Can you offer us your analysis on the bond market right now, treasuries specifically? Well, it's interesting how well the bond market's been doing in an environment where the Fed's been raising short-term rates quite aggressively. And in an environment where we have quantitative tightening, where they're actually letting their securities mature, there's clearly been a, a tremendous demand for uh, for bonds. Um, I think a lot of it is uh, there's a tremendous amount of liquidity out there still. Uh, I, I know people have focused on M2 and uh, have had a, a doomish scenario because M2 has been declining. But M2 is still about a trillion dollars above its pre-pandemic trend line demand deposits are also something uh, more than that, actually. We've, M2 has never been more liquid. Is there an obvious relationship at the moment between how treasuries have performed and what equities have been doing? Yeah. What is it? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, last year they were both doing uh, horribly. It was uh, something that we hadn't seen in quite some time. Uh, now I think uh, both asset classes have done quite well, um, I mean, uh, you know, the, the bonds have at least earned you the coupon. They haven't really hurt you. I, I'm looking at the the bonds to, uh, I think the bonds peaked at 4.2% uh, uh, on October 24th, I believe, uh, last year. A lot of good things happened in October of last year. And so I, I think the bonds are okay. And uh, I think stocks uh, st still have upside, especially in the laggers like financials and industrials. So you think even if the Fed sticks at, say, 550 and just holds it there, this equity market's okay? 
Well, you know, the, the feds have been kind of telling different stories. When individual uh, fed officials have been talking, they've been uh, awfully hawkish. But when they get together and put together the summary of economic projections, they've been very reasonable. They said, look, we want to get it up to a restrictive level. Uh, I think they're there. The banking crisis, I think, demonstrated that they're there. It's restrictive enough. And I think they want to keep it there. I, I never was in that camp that believed that the Fed was going to lower interest rates. I took them at their word. I, I think they could declare mission accomplished, except that's a jinx. So it's better that they don't do that and that they continue to talk Can hawkish. Can they take a victory lap? Well, I, I, I hope they don't. Uh, you know, victory laps are jinxes, you know. There you go. <laughs> I, I've, I've had a few of those in my career, only to be wrong the, 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 almost the yeah, next that's day. That's our theme this morning, Ed, when you weren't here. We, they were busting my chops about victory laps. Well, yeah, Ed, we yeah. won't call this a victory lap for you, but certainly so far, no, so good. No, don't do that. <laughs> so far, so good. Ed, it's good to see you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, sir. Ed Yardeni of Yardeni Research. My experience is people listen when Alan Ruskin speaks. He has the privilege of working with David Fulkert's Landau and putting together holistic global research for uh, Deutsche Bank. Their chief international strategist joins us on what I'm calling from Steve Englander Game Changer Thursday. How much did the game change yesterday, Alan Ruskin, with disinflation codified in the United States? I don't know whether... Disinflation was codified, but things did certainly change substantially in the FX market. We've been entrenched in this incredibly narrow range, really, for most of this year. Euro dollar in particular uh, is seemingly capped at 110.90. And I think once we broke that level, it's opened the floodgates in a way. And the dollar is on the defensive pretty much against all currencies. So uh, it's it's uh, codified a change, as it were, in the FX market, Tom. I looked at a very fancy regression of the blended DXY index back 20 years and certainly off the great financial event of 2008, I can look for further 8% dollar weakness. Do you see that kind of scale to go further with dollar weakness? Tom, I do. Uh, you know, when you look at these big dollar cycles, you know, historically we used to have, you know, sort of six or seven years of up dollar uptick and then nine, you know, maybe even 10 years of dollar famine, as it were. Um, this last cycle got broken up a little bit because of COVID in particular, and we had a bit of a longer uh, uptick. But the down ticks, the down cycles are typically in the order of about 25% down on the trade-weighted index. So we've probably gone maybe a quarter of the way through a typical down cycle. So even if we have, you know, a half a cycle, um, we could certainly get that 8% that you suggest, and it could be substantially more than that. When does fundamental growth matter again, Alan? I mean, we're talking about the rate hiking cycle, we're talking about inflation, but it also is a question of fundamental economic strength that the U.S. seems to be displaying, even as Europe faces a lot of headwinds and potentially more rate hikes into weakness. Yeah, you know, the way I look at it, Lisa, is that uh, there's a continuum where you think in terms of uh, strong growth, a sort of no landing situation, uh, then a soft landing story uh, where you could even have a recession, but it's a shallow recession, or you could have, you know, really amounts to, say, you know, a hard landing where the Fed pushes to the point where something really breaks. At the moment, in that continuum, you've shifted towards more of that sort of soft landing arena with the Fed pivoting in 2024. And that's the worst scenario as far as the dollar is concerned, because risk trades okay, 
and bonds in general like it, equities like it, but the dollar really doesn't like that, that, that scenario. So the dollar tends to do poorly against G10 because of the Fed pivot, and it doesn't do well against EM because risk usually is trading okay as well. And to that point, Alan, I'm thinking about typical cycles when the dollar does worse. Usually that is a risk on scenario, risk on in emerging markets, risk on around the world, a sense of growth. How does that dovetail into the potential weakness and greater weakness in other non-U.S. areas at a time when the U.S. is actually shockingly resilient and showing a much faster pace of disinflation? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we're certainly looking at the U.S. being one of the slowest uh, major economies in terms of GDP growth for 2024. Uh, the U.K. will probably outdo us on a you know GDP Q4 Q4 basis for 2024, uh, but the, the U.S. is you know pretty much up there. So we're not seeing and not do not expect that other economies will quite match the degree of slowing that we anticipate uh, for the first half of 2024. Obviously, if that you know doesn't materialize that gives the dollar a little bit more of a boost because you're not going to get the rate cuts that uh, we're expecting for 2024. Alan, where's the tradable pair here? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, euro higher, but where's the opportunity here, the big figure trade that you would suggest for Deutsche Bank clients? Yeah, you know, I think if you want, uh, you know, sort of a souped-up euro trade, then uh, I, you know, I like uh, the Norwegian krone particularly. I think uh, it's grossly undervalued by every metric that we look at: PPP, DBIR, FIR. I can, you know, throw out acronyms galore, and they all tell you the same story: that the Norwegian krona is grossly undervalued. So, you know, in a world where, uh, you know, sort of high beaters are trading okay, the Norwegian krona has got a long way. To go still. I mean, you got Norway there. Is that an oil play where it's just simply a, a linked into a Deutsche Bank recovery in the price of oil given better times, given better global demand? No, I think it's a it's more of a high beta uh, euro trade, really. Um, it's got drawn down and pulled down a little bit by the Swedish krona, which has uh, you know had its own set of problems that don't necessarily relate closely to Norway, but uh, you know it's getting tagged along. Right. But uh, no, I you know I see this really as uh, a euro play, but with a high beta currency that's uh, ex extremely undervalued. Alan, I featured at the top today the absolute shock of a peso comfortable 2120 and imagine Mexican peso strengthening through 17 I didn't frame that how how can that happen how does Mexico improve from here to 15 or a 14 level yeah, you know, I think people have been playing the Mexico trade now for a couple of years, and you just saw a little bit of a squeeze because, you know, a lot of people were long Mexico versus the yen, and the yen side of things squeezed quite badly. Um, look, I think the Mexican fundamentals have been remarkably resilient for, you know, a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's underbanked as such, and there's very little leverage in the system, so that when rates go up, uh, the Mexican economy does prove pretty resilient. And then I think there's a structural story and a structural play, uh, you know, whereby people are relocating, you know, closer shoring, as it were, to the U.S. and away from Asia and, and China in particular. So I think those elements are still there. The data still looks OK. When the trade accounts start to deteriorate, we know and we'll get the you know, much stronger signal that uh, the Mexican peso is, is more significantly uh, overvalued. At the moment, it looks overvalued on a real exchange rate basis, but we don't really see it in the trade data.
We're speaking with Alan Ruskin of Deutsche Bank at a time when the dollar is the strongest going back more than a year. You can see the euro ascendant. The possibility, as Alan projects out, of a 120 euro. Good luck to all of those European vacations everyone's trying to clock in right now. I'm wondering, Alan, from your perspective, how much of a boost this will give U.S. businesses, international businesses that have suffered with a strong dollar in terms of uh, their sales overseas. Does this in some ways give a headwind to U.S. growth down the line in a sort of on the margins level? Yeah, I think, uh, Lisa, you hit the, you used the right word. At the margins, this is going to be helpful uh, for U.S. corporations, uh, helpful for exports, helpful for the uh, uh, the equity market as well. So, you know, we've got some constructive elements there. Uh, exports have held up quite well in the grand scheme of things uh, in the U.S. relative to other countries. Uh, so, you know, this is going to be a, a further boost. I think there's some very helpful things happening in U.S. manufacturing. Uh, the defense industry is obviously doing extremely well. You've had this relocation in terms of semiconductor plants, uh, you know, back to the U.S. Uh, you know, you've got some very helpful elements there. So uh, I think this is, you know, this, this is all the more good news as far as the resilience that you were speaking about earlier. Six days of dollar weakness against the euro. Euro dollar 111.67. Alan Ruskin at Deutsche Bank there on the FX market. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Erica Najarian uh, joins us now, large cap banks and consumer finance uh, expert here at UBS. Erica, just a general question to begin the discussion. What will you look for? in the beginning of the press, lease, press releases tomorrow into Monday, into Tuesday. What is the theme, the tendency you will look for? So there are really three things that I'm going to look for. First is capital. Like it or not, uh, a lot of investors are laser focused on capital and how in, uh, how banks are building capital, not just because the rules are getting tougher, but also because there continues to be uncertainty in the economy in terms of the outlook, no matter what the macro prints are saying. You know, the second thing I'm going to look at is net interest income and how deposit costs and deposit growth are trending 
Although a lot of investors are thinking that we are in the late innings of that being a catalyst, a negative catalyst for the stocks. And the third thing I'm going to look for is any signs that credit is deteriorating underneath the surface. As you know, as all three of you know, the market is very sensitive for you know any hiccups in commercial real estate. And so those are really the top three things I'm going to right. look for. And Friday. How do you weight your large cap world with the super regionals, the regionals, and the SVB, like the, the smaller banks that are out there? What's the level of importance of the next three or four days versus everything else in bank earnings season? Well, I'll, I'll say that it's probably an even more pivotal time for the regional banks, particularly the super regional banks that are within the scope of the bar speech with regards to new regulation. So I think that JP Morgan, B of A, Wells, Citigroup, Morgan, Goldman, you know, those are institutions that have gone through the first iteration of the rule change when we went through, you know, Basel, the Basel III framework and put on these new capital rules and new liquidity rules sort of post 2008. So we have clear evidence that They've been able to survive and thrive under that regime. I think the super regionals are in a different spot where regulatory um, rules are getting much stricter for them. And so they sort of have to balance and tell their investors how they're going to deal with that. Uh, are they going to continue lending? Are they going to pause buyback for longer? How are they going to grow capital? The good news is that the bar speech is indicating that these super regional banks do have a lot of time before these tighter capital rules become final. There is a question, of course, also around some of the largest banks. Goldman Sachs in particular has been guiding down its guidance pretty aggressively and with a break from some of its past practices in terms of not giving intra-earnings uh, intra guidance. This is likely to become the worst quarter since David Solomon became the CEO. This according to Mike Mayo over at Wells Fargo. What are you expecting and why the negative kind of results that we're expecting? So, Lisa, not to defer your question, I actually don't cover Goldman Sachs, but given the vagaries of, you know, trading volatility, investment banking volatility in the quarter, um, you know, a lot of the banks have been, you know, giving mid-quarter updates, but also saying that a lot can change over the, you know, over the next few weeks. Going forward, what is going to be the main pressure that you're looking for? Is it going to be loan losses, loan loss reserves at the big banks? Is it going to be interest margins? Is it going to be how much the uh, deposit beta is increasing as they try to compete for deposits? That's a great question. I think that because the bank failures put deposit costs and deposit growth in the spotlight, it feels like that is already priced into the stocks in terms of further pain. And I think the CPI print gives bank stocks some relief as we can see the light at the end of the proverbial tunnel in terms of Fed tightening. You know, I think the one thing, and the bar speech was pretty much down to fairway, so to speak, with regards to what the market ex is expecting for further regulatory tightening. I think the biggest, biggest hurdle for investors in terms of you know, <clears throat> buying stocks, buying bank stocks here, despite the valuation, is that specter of credit. And so yeah. I think that's really the one thing that everybody's looking, back, looking over their shoulder and saying, is it really time to buy bank stocks? Because I don't know what's going to happen in the economy. And maybe the last thing I really want to do is own bank stocks into a downturn. 
Uh, Erica, very quickly, we're out of time, but what's the single best buy right now? We're going into earnings season. We're going to tape this, play it back on Thursday. What's the single best buy among the big banks? Bank of America. I thought, oh, okay, that was short and brief. Thank you. We'll have to have <laughs> well, you did ask to... for a single best buy. You know, yeah, a single best buy, Bank of America. Now, Erica assumes we're up against the clock, Tom. Yeah. You know, that's know. the right thing to do. Okay. Erica and Jared. Follow instructions, Tom. UPS. <laughs> Erica, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Erica. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.